I'm Linda Yu, I'm a Fellow in Economics at St. Edmund Hall, and my latest book is titled The Law and Economics of Globalization, out in the autumn of 2009. I'm Professor Jonathan Mickey, the President of Kellogg College, and I edited the book Globalization by Edward Elgar. I'm Martin Slater, I'm also a Fellow in Economics at St. Edmund Hall. The topic we're going to tackle in the podcast today is whether or not governments should use fiscal policy to counter a recession, much like we've seen governments around the world do in this recession. And we're going to debate the pros and cons, the arguments for and against the use of fiscal stimulus in a recession. So the question that my colleagues and I would try and tackle today is, should governments have used fiscal policy to counter the recession and continue to use it during what many believe will be a fragile recovery? I think I'll kick off and say that one of the reasons why governments in this crisis felt they needed to use fiscal policy is because the credit crunch, which resulted from the financial crisis, made it difficult to use monetary policy in the normal way, such as cutting interest rates and waiting for the monetary transmission mechanism where the cut in interest rates generates money flowing through the banking system and out into the wider economy. Because the credit system was clogged, the, it made monetary policy more difficult to use and fiscal policy became a rallying cry. However, I think one of the things that we'll have to uh, discuss and analyze today is what are the consequences of using uh, fiscal policy uh, then and looking ahead. Jonathan, can I turn to you for uh, your thoughts? Yes, on the pros and cons of using fiscal policy, whether it's effective or not, I think it's also worth pointing out that there have been disagreements on this going back for decades in the economic profession. And there have been whole eras when the um, view was that uh, you shouldn't use it, that it wouldn't be effective, and other times when the profession almost unanimously said the opposite thing. So broadly, um, up until the 1929 Wall Street crash and the, and the 1930s Global Depression, up until that point, all governments thought you had to balance your books. You couldn't use active fiscal policy. Then John Maynard Keynes came along in the Great Depression, published his general theory of employment, interest and money, and pointed out that you could get out of a recession by boosting demand, by government boosting demand, by spending more than it was uh, taking in through taxes. And that was accepted throughout the world for another whole generation or more throughout the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s. And then from 1979 onwards, when after the 1970s had led to inflation, when governments had been using fiscal policy, there was another complete reversal. And the 1980s and 1990s, and to an extent right up to the, the global credit crunch was an era where fiscal policy activism, if you like, Keynesian policies, had been thought to have been discredited and the world was broadly monetarist or, or orthodox um, in, in um, anti-Keynesian fiscal policy activism terms. Um, so I think the fact that fiscal policy has been used so actively is worth pointing out that that's quite a break, you know, historically, but it's not the first time that we've seen that sort of switch. So I'd say that, um, yes, 
fiscal it was right that the governments did use fiscal policy in the in after the following the global credit crunch and it's no coincidence that it, that they did so given that after all it was the biggest global recession since the global depression in the 1930s martin can i turn to you uh, for your views on the pros and cons of using fiscal policy well uh, as jonathan said fiscal policy has had its ups and downs uh, and there are both theoretical and practical reasons for that. Um, one reason why fiscal policy fell out of favour theoretically in recent years is the resurgence of what was called the theories of, of Ricardian equivalence, that with perfectly functioning capital markets and very far-sighted uh, consumers and producers, that the private sector might take actions which would effectively nullify the government's intentions in fiscal policy. Now, of course, the world we've just been living through is quite clearly one where the financial markets are by no means perfect. And so the particular circumstances that we have been living are clearly ones that are, are very far from the world that Ricardian equivalence is, is thought of uh, as having some kind of sway. So I think that whereas one might feel that in fairly stable times the effects of fiscal policy might not be very great, uh, the, the particular times we've been living through, as indeed were the particular times of the 1930s when Keynes uh, propounded the active use of fiscal policy are, of course, exactly those times when monetary policy and the beneficial effects of the financial system are no longer to be relied on. Now, the, the other reason I think fiscal policy fell out of, of favour is, is a more practical one, and that was the question of, of how easy it is to fine-tune changes in fiscal policy uh, to actually control the economy. I think there's no doubt that the early days of Keynesian economic policy, uh, policymakers thought that by moving public expenditure and taxation up and down, you could actually fine-tune the economy uh, fairly precisely. And they found that in practice that was a, a little difficult. You, you cannot easily bring forward large infrastructure projects and, or delay large infrastructure projects that are desirable in other respects just because of the the financial situation. Uh, and there are certain ways in which changes in fiscal policy can destabilise private sector expectations. So if things are going well otherwise, then of course it is probably reasonably sensible not to, not to rock the boat too much in fiscal policy. But again, the situations we've been living through, things have not been well otherwise. So you know, this would appear to be uh, quite rightly a situation in which you, you would actually take much larger bets on fiscal policy. I think it raises, and both of you raise some good arguments about why it is we've seen this revival. Can I just probe a bit and say, but what about the consequences? Surely one of the reasons, as Jonathan pointed out, that uh, Keynesian fiscal uh, policies fell out of favour was because of the inflationary consequences associated yeah, well, generally there were two reasons why governments became cautious about using fiscal policy when, after apparently being very successful during the 1950s and 1960s, keeping full employment in the 1970s, it seemed to um, um, hit difficulties. One was um, with the rise of inflation, although now we can see maybe there were all sorts of other factors going on there, 
including increased oil prices. Um, but the other was that if one government tried to use fiscal policy, increase spending or, or cut taxes, the danger was that that increase in spending went to buy goods from overseas. And it would just lead to a big increase in imports and balance of payments deficits. You wouldn't boost your domestic economy at all. And you could get into a balance of payments crisis, particularly if your, your exchange rate um, was fixed. So I think in, it's vital to remember the, the global dimension to all this. And whether you're talking about fiscal policy in a single economy or in one country with other countries pursuing different policies. And when Keynes expanded um, the theory, explained it in his general theory of employment, interest and money, he explicitly, I mean he wasn't hiding anything explicitly, considered a closed economy, just ignored that, that sort of problem about imports and exports. But once you relax that assumption and get into the real world, there's the immediate question, okay, if your economy's in recession and you need to expand demand somehow, um, how are you going to do it? If the government boosts demand by 10 billion um, pounds or 10 billion dollars, Will that all go to, to create jobs in your economy? And the answer depends partly um, whether that money is spent domestically or whether it's spent on um, buying uh, imports from, from other countries. And that then comes on to an incredibly controversial policy area of protectionism and whether you should um, try and restrict imports coming into the, the economy. Um, and protectionism is generally thought to be you know, a bad thing um, that we should always have, have free trade and so on. But it's actually much more complex if you're in a situation where the world economy is in recession, there's unemployment in, in the various countries, and a government, a country is thinking, well, how can it get out of this situation? Because ideally, all countries would, would follow the same policies and boost the economies. But if they don't, then the question is, is there anything one country can do? And the answer is without, it may be that without protectionism, without some sort of um, control on an I the increase in imports that will follow if that country alone boosts um, demand through fiscal policy, unless they, they have that um, coordination, then actually it may be the only way the government can tackle unemployment to boost the economy domestically is precisely to have some control on the degree to which imports will rise as a result of that fiscal activism. And what was very interesting, that, that was illustrated in the, the post-credit crunch uh, recession of 2009 when Barack Obama introduced his huge fiscal stimulus. Because if you remember, there was uh, precisely this great controversy when he tried to devise policies to ensure that as much of that increase in demand would go into demand for um, American goods, create American jobs as possible. That was one of the arguments why the G20, when they met to discuss the recession, wanted to coordinate um, their fiscal policies because the idea was some of the expenditure would surely spill out into other countries' exports, your imports, and the IMF believed if countries coordinated their spending, then they would have the maximum benefit, and they estimated a range of things that um, could happen, but of course, there was no explicit coordination. However, because of the synchronization of this global recession for virtually every country, it turned out that every country pretty much spent at around the same time anyways. Um, but it does raise questions about the basis for the Buy American policy, which you mentioned, and also the Buy Local Chinese policy, which came on the back of that. So the two major economies 
um, in the world which was spending on the stimulus. So around two and a half trillion dollars have been spent in what pledged to be spent in fiscal policy around the world. And China and the United States account for uh, one and a half trillion dollars of it. And these two countries both had some measures of protectionism um, within their policies. I think something else which struck me about, and this is a very European debate, is the extent to which fiscal policy needs to be spent in a discretionary sense. Because the IMF, you'll recall at the time, suggested that all countries spend 2% of GDP. And the continental Europeans, the Germans and the French, were very much against the idea of increasing the discretionary part of fiscal spending. Because one of the um, benefits of fiscal policy, as Martin said, there is, there is an implementation lag because not every project can be spent today. Not everything is shovel ready. Some things which can be done quickly, like a cut in VAT, but others cannot be done quickly. However, one of the fastest things about fiscal policy are the automatic stabilizers, the counter-cyclical movement of fiscal policy. We're in a recession, benefit payments go up, taxes come down, which increases disposable income in the private sector, which automatically boosts the economy. So this difference between the size of the automatic stabilizers in Anglo-America versus Europe was certainly another bone of contention when countries are trying to work out if each other are properly coordinating rather than being protectionist about their fiscal um, spending. Martin, do you have any arguments on the consequences perhaps of fiscal policy? Well, on the international consequences, of course, uh, yes, protection is one thing that comes up, but I suppose personally I would prefer to see that kind of issue dealt with by devaluation, which is another way of uh, essentially uh, stopping things leaking from abroad. And uh, in, in most cases where, where countries have uh, considered quite carefully protectionism, uh, one usually finds that there's some reason why they are constrained from using the exchange rate, uh, either by actual international agreements, as, the, as was the case with the gold standard, or with some kind of other macroeconomic policy objective, as, as there is in the case, for instance, of the Chinese economy vis-à-vis -vis the Americans. So, on the whole, if you can actually uh, manage that by exchange rate movements, uh, I think that has less unfavourable effects on international confidence uh, than a, a lapse into protectionism will do. Therefore, the international side has a problem, but uh, clearly we cannot all de devalue at the same time. But equally, of course, we cannot all get out of our international problems by protecting at the same time. So, you know, this is only something that can really shift the pain around, and this perhaps comes back to Linda's point about different countries being in different fiscal positions. Uh, the other obvious kind of problem with fiscal policy that people perceive is that it leads to an increase in indebtedness in the long term, and that's obviously exercised people a lot in the last year. We see public debt going up, is this a problem or is it not? And quite clearly there are, there are really quite well-defined battle lines drawn on that. Um, now I think you know, one needs to dis distinguish quite 
carefully at the beginning between two different concepts here. One is the annual deficit that a country has, and the other is the cumulative amount of debt that their country has, has managed to amass over a period of years. And one of the causes, I think, of confusion a lot of um, commentators about whether one particular economy is in a worse position than another is that people tend to slip from one to the other. So that one can see, for instance, in the UK's case, the UK has a very large annual deficit. So if you actually take that as being the measure of the problem, you would say the UK is, is one of the most vulnerable countries in this kind of uh, situation. Um, on the other hand, the UK, rather fortunately, is starting from a position of a relatively more favourable position of accumulated debt than many other countries, so that after a few years, although we may actually have larger annual deficits than many of our European partners, we will only be um, catching up on their, their cumulative debts. Uh, now, there's no doubt that the annual debts are quite, are quite big relative to, to GDP at the moment. And the accumulated debts relative to GDP are going to be much bigger than we have been accustomed to in the last 20 years. Um, but historically, that is not necessarily the case that they are bigger than we have had before. Uh, we have had larger national debts uh, at the end of the Second World War, for instance. Um, and uh, even at the moment, uh, there are countries, for instance, Japan has a much larger accumulated national debt relative to the GDP than, than we do. So it is still really quite a, a matter of judgment as to whether you think that, that these things are seriously going to become derailed in, in the near future. I suppose the big argument, there's lots of big arguments over this question, and that really goes to whether or not governments should use, continue to use fiscal policy because indebtedness um, could either crowd out private investment, which is a very typical argument that if governments do on the borrowing, it'll squeeze out more efficient private sector investment. Um, the counter argument to that is you're, that only happens if you're assuming a rather fixed supply of savings and it probably won't happen in, in this global context where we may actually have savings glut. There's a great deal of savings out there. And I think the other big consequence of debt, in addition to repayment, which Martin has mentioned, is whether or not it's inflationary. So having an accumulation of deficits on an annual basis of the scale we're talking about in some countries of exceeding 10% of GDP, does that, in the medium term, turn into a problem with um, inflation? Um, I want us to turn now to, if we could, exit. There's a lot of talk now about exiting from fiscal policy. So, of course, there is a counterpart in monetary policy. When do you start raising interest rates, withdrawing quantitative easing? But there's a similar argument on the fiscal side. The arguments here, I think, are rather difficult to assess. I'll start with one, and, and this does come to the kind of temporary EAT cut policy, which is what you normally want for something like boosting spending in a recession is to force people to spend today instead of spending, say, next year. So if you give them a VAT cut this year that expires at the end of this year, or a cash for clunkers program which expires at 
the in, end of the year where it's six months, then people push ahead their purchases. So therefore, you get the boost to spending that you need um, today. However, there's still a debate about whether or not other types of fiscal policy should be extended to support the economy through the recession. Martin. Well, I think the, the problem with withdrawing uh, tax incentive is that a temporary tax incentive, uh, if it's known in advance, will indeed have the effect of bringing forward uh, consumption expenditure into the um, into the incentivized time frame. And when you actually take it away, you then find, of course, that you have brought forward consumption demand that you would have expected to be in, in next year, and therefore you find uh, an excessive overreaction, and that is the thing that is that worries policymakers. Now, policymakers therefore are in a, in a rather odd kind of fix. Ideally, you you would say that the the thing to do with fiscal policy uh, is that the private sector really would like a very firm plan to see when all these fiscal stimulus measures will disappear. And it's only that that will actually keep their confidence up in the long term and avoid, avoid some kind of indebtedness crisis. But of course, if consumers are well aware that the uh, incentives are going to disappear at a particular time, then you have a very serious problem about a dip in aggregate demand immediately they are withdrawn. Um, what are the possible ways that the authorities could uh, counteract that? One, of course, is that they could withdraw things almost arbitrarily without actually signalling very much in advance. That, I think, is something that they'd be rather loath to do. The other course, of course, is that they really have to withdraw these things very slowly indeed. They do not want to have sharp cut-offs in the fiscal incentives because that will actually produce really quite big dislocations over short periods of time of aggregate demand. So in, in terms of the exit strategy, I would, I would think that therefore you, you really should run the, the stimulus down very slowly, uh, not actually sort of take a, a, a kind of short, sharp shock uh, kind of uh, policy implication. Yes, that's right, because it's important to remember that the context is um, that uh, we need to we need to um, reduce the government deficit in order to tackle the, these huge uh, um, debts which have been accumulated. Um, but the, the the basic point is that if um, government spending was cut or taxes were increased uh, too sharply, um, the reduction in demand, if that pushes the economy back into recession, means that government uh, spending, ironically, would then go up again on unemployment pay, certainly tax revenues would fall, and actual result of that might be to increase the government deficit, rather reduce it, and increase the, the total um, amount of accumulated debt that actually made the problem worse that you're trying to solve. So even for that, quite aside from any any question about whether you want to be spending this money on schools, hospitals, etc., um, quite aside from that, the um, it's important to not choke off any recovery by um, by tightening fiscal policy uh, too quick. But there's a, a separate point as well um, about if you, if and when you are um, able to uh, reduce demand coming from government because 
demand is is recovering elsewhere. Once you're in a position to be able to reduce and, and possibly eliminate um, the government's fiscal uh, deficit. The discussion at the moment globally seems to be very much about government spending cuts to do that, but of course the other side of the coin is, is tax increases and it's quite possible to um, eliminate the uh, fiscal deficits and then pay down the big debts through tax increases rather than government spending cuts. And I think there's a strong argument um, for taking that approach, increasing um, taxes on a whole range of areas. I mean, because of the, the crisis that being caused by the banks, the, the media's picked up on, on um, taxing the bank bonuses, windfall tax on, on bank profits and so on. But the general point would just be to return to having a more progressive income tax and wealth tax structure in, in countries across the world, because one of the contributory factors to the, the whole global recession for the credit crunch in the first place was a huge increase in inequality over the previous 10, 20 years, and particularly the, the emergence of a large number of super wealthy um, billionaires who are actually driving the demand for all these new financial products that were being invented, um, bundled up and then sold around, uh, around the world. So actually, just even to create a more stable global economy over the next 10, 20 years, one of the important tasks would be to reduce that huge uh, inequality. And the way to do that is to introduce high rates of income and wealth taxes on those very wealthy uh, individuals. So there's two, two questions. One is, yes, take a gradual approach to reducing the, the government deficit as the economy recovers, but also um, that doesn't have to be through government spending cuts, that can be through tax increases. Um, now, there's one final point there which comes back to this point about um, internationalism and, and global action, where again, um, the more coordination you can get on that, the better. And, and it's good that there has been talk about, about trying to get rid of the international tax havens and so on. But another, another um, new tax which has been um, discussed quite a bit uh, recently is, is the so-called Tobin tax, to actually introduce a tax on financial speculation um, to damp it down. And interestingly, this is a, a proposal which was put forward by, by Tobin, the Nobel Prize winning economist, decades uh, ago, um, precisely, even you know, well before the financial crisis, but precisely because he, he thought it, it was just economically harmful to have so much financial speculation going on, and in his words, it would actually be good to put some sand in the wheels um, of all that, and I think it's been proved dramatically right by um, the events of, of 2008 and 2009, and that tax on financial um, speculation would have a, a dual benefit. A, it would raise huge sums, and B, it would reduce the amount of that speculation which went on. We've done taxes, we've done <laughs> getting rid of debt, I suppose. It's probably time to wrap up, and I thought I would actually try to wrap up on a slightly brighter note, if that's actually possible, <laughs> uh, we're talking about um, fiscal policy, which is we've talked about crowding out, but there is this notion of crowding in where government spending can make private investment more efficient. It's, it spends on things like infrastructure we need, smart grids for energy, Green New Deal, green technology, um, investing in R&D and D, research and development and demonstration of new projects. And if that's why we're accumulating debt, then, then the payoff may actually come in the future. And I suppose if we do see another round 
of fiscal spending or maintenance of fiscal spending, we could perhaps cross our fingers that the spending will go into things which are socially productive. But that's all the good news I have on uh, trying to find a bright note in the mountain of debt we're swimming in. Um, but uh, it does seem that uh, from our discussion today, I think the panel seems to be of the view that fiscal policy was necessary in this recession is necessary through the recovery, but the important thing will be to be able to bring down the amount of indebtedness through uh, ways which don't just involve cuts in spending, but perhaps new ways of, of taxation. But I think the issue here is going to be timing. When do you bring it down?